I want to say a couple quick words about being away, and then we'll spend some time today in Colossians chapter 3. Um, as James mentioned, the goals of my time away this summer are to spend some time in study and ministry review, some time that I don't always have because of normal routines of ministry. So my summer will be spent in, uh, in study and some, in reviewing kind of some of the things that we do here overall and from the standpoint of discipleship, because that's what we're about. We're about making disciples. One thing in particular that I want to spend some time meditating on and thinking through is as we have families whose kids are now moving toward youth group age, I want to spend some time thinking about this summer how we can put that together well. Um, we've talked about for a number of years the need to do that, but now we're on the brink of it, and so we want to do a good job with that. It'll start small, but as you know, we have a lot of people back there, a lot of little people back there, and eventually they're going to be um, a large little group of people that we need to disciple really well at that next level. We try to do that well with Kids Church and are even thinking about how we can do that better, but as they're moving up in age now, we want to make sure that as they enter that critical phase of junior high and, and into high school that we're spending time with them and loving them and pointing them to Christ and then helping them to develop godly friendships. So that's one of the things this summer that I'm going to be focusing on is, is how we can put that together tangibly really well. And then when I get back at the end of August, I'd like to sit down with the families whose kids are approaching that age and have some discussion about your thoughts and your ideas and then how we can start implementing that, hopefully even this fall. So those are some of the things that uh, I'll be thinking about this summer. And then just a lot of normal reading of some books that have been waiting, and I want to spend some time just uh, with God and, and growing. So I appreciate the opportunity, and I want to say that, that this is a blessing for my family to be able to step away, um, to, uh, to get some rest, and also to have some, some time to grow and be sharpened as a leader here. So I don't take this for granted. It's, it's not normal to have uh, a group of leaders here like we have. We have two older men who have now raised godly kids, who are now raising godly grandkids. It's, it's not normal to see families that generationally are following Christ. Tom and Harvey have, have led their families like that. These are men that have spent decades pouring over the Word of God. And so it's not normal to have men like that. Um, it's not normal to have three other guys like James and Greg and Mark who have master's degrees in theology but have other secular jobs. That's not normal. And so you have an abnormal group of leaders here who are really well-equipped. We have kind of an embarrassment of riches for our size of church with the kind of godly and gifted elders that we have. So we've been talking in the background about how to take up my responsibilities for the summer, especially in preaching and discipleship. As James mentioned, because we're so committed to verse-by-verse exposition, we decided that it would be wise to just pick a book of the Bible that we could get through in the summer. And so that's what's going to happen this summer is they're going to sequentially preach through the book of Philippians. I will be back for one of those Sundays on July the 19th because that will be our farewell service for James and Cindy. I think they'll actually be here the 26th, but the 19th works out well for us. I'd like you to mark that on your calendar. I know how the summer can get away from you. We'll be announcing these things via email, but there'll be a picnic that day immediately after the service where we can have some fellowship with them afterward. So we'll have a special service where people can give some testimonies about how God has blessed you through James and Cindy, and then I will be preaching that day. But I'm going to stick right through Philippians. I'm going to be preaching a passage that day about Timothy and Epaphroditus that really fits in well with how we can both honor God and honor James and Cindy at the same time. And then uh, they'll finish 
Philippians after that. I want to uh, thank you as a church family that you're giving us this opportunity. Um, some of you perhaps have been in churches where this has happened before, some of you not, and so this is kind of new. We're grateful for your love and support of us. And then I want to just give you one exhortation, uh, a few elements before I spend a, a few moments in God's Word today. And first of all, I want you to be unified this summer, okay? Um, stick together. This is important. Just because uh, my watchful eye is gone doesn't mean there will not be other watchful eyes on you. So stay together. Stay unified. That means you should be together. That means you should be here on Sundays. That means you should be in small group. That means you should be faithful to the things God has called you to. Nothing changes just because I'm out of the pulpit a little bit. We are an elder-led church. I am not the king here. I am not the senior pastor here. We don't like language like that. We don't ever use language like that. So things continue on like they normally do, and this, this summer will be proof of that. So, so stay unified. Um, be faithful to, to one another in, in the days to come. We are a family. Um, offenses could rise this summer. So when offenses rise, confess and forgive and love each other. And then thirdly, I want this to be a time of growth. This probably will be a very, very important summer in the history of our church because it's unique and because I am away. And I think that because of the leadership of the elders and because of your commitment to them and to each other, this is actually a really needed thing for our church. So I want you to be unified. I want you to be faithful. And I want you to grow this summer. So trust the Spirit and be committed to that. Let's spend some time now in God's Word. If you don't mind, let's turn together together to Colossians chapter 3. As I said to you last week, I wanted to, to say some things to you before I step away for the summer. And so last week, we talked about the spirit of who you are to be, who we are to be as God's people. And by spirit, I mean who you are, what, what, you're, what you exude, what you're like. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, tell us that, what we are to be like. Our verses for today in verses 16 and 17 will tell us what we're to do. But for sake of review, I want to say this to you today. In light of the unfathomable grace that God has shown us, we must be, and we learned last week, merciful. We'll be marked by mercy as our God is merciful to us. You'll notice then at the beginning of verse 12 that Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those are all reminders of their special privilege as God's people. They're chosen by Him. They're holy. They're being made holy, set apart to God, and they're beloved. So the Almighty has made rebels into children. The Almighty has taken those who were His enemies, and He's made them His own. So this is unfathomable grace. We don't deserve it. And in light of that, we're to be merciful, as God has been merciful to us. We're to be kind, Paul says. We're to be marked by humility. We're to be gentle. This is not a common quality among most people, sadly, even among most Christians. But gentleness is a mark of those who know and love God. And I'm not going to re-preach last Sunday's sermon. I'm just giving you an outline again. We're to be patient. This is one of the most difficult things for us as 
people, as dads, as moms, as spouses or friends, it's hard to be patient with each other because the reality is we are very selfish and it's hard to watch other people change because it takes a long time. But because our Savior is so very patient with us, He calls us to patience as well. We're to be long-suffering. This goes along with being patient. Uh, Whenever you live in close proximity to people, even the people you love the most, guess what happens? You will be hurt. But because your Savior never runs away from you, you are not to run away from each other. We are to be long-suffering with one another. We are to be faithful because God's grace is unfathomable, because He has shown us His love. We are to be faithful toward one another, loyal toward one another. We are to be postured toward forgiveness. This means that at all times, in all seasons, we are ready to forgive small offenses and big offenses. As I've already said to you, when you live in close proximity to people, guess what? You are going to be hurt. But there should not be limits because your Savior never fails to forgive you. You must extend gracious forgiveness to those around you. We are also to be eager to love. This means that above all things, as Paul says here in this text, that we are to be marked by love because love holds everything together in perfect harmony. And because our God is love, His followers are to be known by that as well. Jesus said to the disciples before He was arrested and crucified, by this Well, all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And our love should look a little bit odd. It should be surprising. We are to be committed to harmony. Paul says that we are called together in one body. And as we understand this vital union that the Spirit has given us, we are to be committed to it. And this takes effort. Harmony does not happen haphazardly. You know this from your marriages. Marriage does not thrive unless harmony is pursued volitionally and deliberately and sacrificially. A lot of people like the idea of a close community in a church, but when they find out what it's going to cost them, not many are willing to pay that price. But harmony exists in the very fabric of the foundation of the Trinity. There has always been harmony among the persons of the Godhead. And as God has called us back into harmonious union with Him through Christ, we are to replicate that, to to represent that toward one another, to pursue deliberate harmony. Again, what will this cost you? It will cost you virtually everything, but the same unity and harmony that exists in God Himself can begin to exist among His people, and this is a beautiful, though costly thing. And then Paul says, lastly, that we are to be thankful. You notice at the head of verse 12, he says to put on. So all these qualities we are to deliberately put on by faith in the Spirit who enables us toward these things. And notice the last thing he says is we're to put on thankfulness. My son yesterday was headed inside, and he was pouting. He was mad. He generally is a very happy little kid. 
but yesterday he was mad about something, and it wasn't a big deal. So I could see this in him, and I know my kids well enough to know that if we don't arrest the spiraling downward, it will continue and it will get worse. So I pulled him aside, my sweet little boy, and I held his hand, and I said, buddy, you're not being very thankful right now. And he kind of grinned at me because he knew, and I said, let's talk about a couple of things you can be thankful for. And then he rattled off a couple of things real quick. And I spent some time on the porch praying with him, thanking God for a couple of things. And it was amazing, and he's little, and his life is not that very complex yet. It was amazing how just in a few moments, his heart went from complaining to being okay with the next situation that we were calling him to. And I think, frankly, as adults, we're often not that much better. So the reality is, whether you're young and you're hearing me today, or you're a little older and you're hearing me today, Thanksgiving is not something that comes naturally for most of us. Thankfulness is something that we have to deliberately put on. It sounds a little odd. You wouldn't necessarily think of it that way. But under inspiration of the Spirit, Paul tells us that because we have a tendency toward complaining, because we have a tendency to think that the world revolves around us and we deserve everything, gratitude is something that we must put on. The reality is we're going to have lots of disappointments in this life. Sometimes your marriage will not work out exactly the way that you planned. Sometimes your children will not do all the things that you want them to do. Family members will get sick. Finances will not always be what you want them to be. You will lose jobs. Friendships will become brittle. Sometimes the dreams that you've had since you were a little boy or a little girl will not come to fruition in the way that you wanted them to. For some of you sitting here today, if you're being honest, your life has not worked out the way that you wanted it to. But don't you have so much? And I don't just mean as Americans. I mean, we have so much. But even more than that, if you have a friend or a spouse or a child that loves you and that you can love, if you have shelter and sufficient food, and even more importantly and most fundamentally, if you have the love of God upon you, if you have been brought into fellowship with the eternal Trinity because God the Son has sacrificed Himself for you and brought Himself to you that you might be one with Him again, if you have that, my brothers and sisters, what do you lack? So, there will always be disappointments, some of them crushing. But I say to you to rehearse deliberately what God has done for you and be thankful. Edward said a long time ago, the beautiful life is the life of love, of others' directed service and affection. With love, even circumstantial hell can be transformed into a taste of heaven. As we've been going together through the book of Genesis, and we'll pick that back up as I come back at the end of August, we recently finished with Jacob's story where God met with him at Bethel, where he set up a ladder and God spoke to him and angels were ascending and descending on this ladder. We learn that as John takes that up in his gospel, in the first chapter of his gospel, that Jesus himself says that I have become that ladder. God is coming to earth through me. I am God. I am Emmanuel. I am with you. That Jesus now exists among his people. He is with us today. 
And therefore, whenever we gather together as His people, heaven meets earth. And as you scatter to the community around you, heaven is intersecting with earth. And as we learn to love each other and learn to love those around us, the circumstantial hell that we see around us, the brokenness of this fallen world that is not yet made new, it's being transformed degree by degree into a little taste of heaven. You have tasted the brokenness of this world and those around you taste it. But as you learn to put on these graces to the grace of the Spirit who is supplied to you, light breaks into the darkness. Wholeness breaks into the brokenness. And all things Jesus is making new. And you're part of that. And that's a pleasure. And that brings us to the last two verses of this section where Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So, if verses 12 through 15 tell us the spirit that we are to exude, what we are to be like, Verses 16 through 17 tell us what we are to do. What's our mission? Our mission is to embrace the gospel and to help each other grow in it. So, in light of the unfathomable grace that God has shown us, we must not only put on these elements in verses 12 through 15, we must also remember what our mission is. And Paul says that it starts with encouraging one another to embrace the gospel. In verse 16, Paul says, but the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What's Paul mean by that? What's the word of Christ? It's probably not just a synonym for the Scriptures, though that wouldn't be a terrible conclusion. This probably has more to do with the things that Jesus said, or maybe even more fundamentally, the very essence of what He came to do. What did Jesus come to do? Certainly, He had things to say to us about how we were to live and treat each other, but most fundamentally, Jesus came to be a sacrifice for us, to bring us into a reconciled relationship with our Creator that we might enjoy Him in the here and in the hereafter. So, the Word of Christ is His Word of good news, where sinners are reconciled to Himself progressively over time, beginning at conversion, continuing through sanctification or Christian growth, and culminating in finality and glorification. What is our hope as a church? Our hope as a church is not that we are purely doctrinal. Our hope as a church is not that we're nice. Our hope as a church is not that we exist in a nice neighborhood or community. We have one singular hope, And that is, the good news has been brought to us through Jesus so that we can be brought from death to life. That's the good news. That's our hope. And what's Paul saying here in verse 16? Let this good news dwell in you. But he amplifies that by saying it should dwell in us richly. 
It should be something that is, is deep within us that we embrace and crave. So Paul exhorts the Colossians here to know the gospel. And what's the goal? The goal is that they collectively will be able to teach and admonish one another. Back in chapter 1, Paul says that he and the rest of the leaders, the apostles, that they were warning believers of, of dangers around them, of heresy, and then they were teaching them that they might grow in grace. And the goal of all that, Paul said, is to present every person mature in Christ. But you see, it's not just the leaders that are to do that. It's, it's you. You are to do that as well. So the spirit that is to exude from us as a church body, we find in verses 12 to 15. That's to characterize us. What are we to do? What are, to, what are we to be about? What are we to, to understand as our primary function? Our primary function is to be, to be richly indwelt by the gospel and then to teach it to those around us. In what manner? In a manner of wisdom. This means at the right time in the right place. This reminds us of what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, that we are to speak the truth and love, Paul says. So not only are we to be growing in knowledge, we are to be growing in grace and wisdom as well. If we're not careful, we can treat the Bible like a club. The Bible is not to be that. It's interesting here that Paul specifies that this is the Word of Christ. He's focusing on the message of the gospel itself, which frankly is the message of the Bible. Ultimately, the message of the Bible is that God is redeeming a people for Himself in Christ. That's the fundamental message of Scripture from beginning to end. God is redeeming for Himself a people through His Son. You're to know that. You're to understand it. You're to pour over it. You're to embrace it. And then you're to teach each other at the right time and the right way the implications of that. By what means do you do that? Paul says here that we're to do it with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Earlier today in our service, Harvey read for us Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 23, but specifically in verses 15 through 20, there's a little short section that's a hymn, and probably the Colossians sang that hymn to each other, and it's all about Jesus being preeminent in redemption and creation. They employed musical harmony in the way that they taught each other. We have an entire book in our Old Testament that's made up of lyrical nature. The Psalms are that for us, but the Psalms teach things. That's why whenever we choose music here that we sing together corporately, that we choose music that is rich in meaning, it has substance to it. So whether you are teaching like I'm doing right now or in your small groups or in discipleship settings or parents in your homes, or whether we're doing something like singing, there are opportunities for the gospel to be embraced understood and followed in all of those opportunities. What's this teaching to be characterized by? Notice what Paul says again at the end of verse 16, just like he did at the end of verse 15, we're to be thankful. Here's some practical suggestions for you. How may the 
word of Christ dwell in us collectively, richly? Well, first, I encourage you to pray, read, and meditate as though these promises are your only hope. If Paul calls us to allow the gospel to dwell in us richly, we have to know it. I think sometimes we look at Bible reading, understanding theology as a great chore. Perhaps you were encouraged in the past to do this merely as a religious exercise and it's tasteless to you. But if you're God's son or you're God's daughter, He is going to do something you inevitably. He is going to cause you to find your limitations. He is going to cause you to continue to run up against roadblocks through things like anxiety, through things like frustration, through things like failure, through things like falling into sin, through things like despair and a host of other emotions, God brings us to the end of ourselves. Those emotions are not necessarily bad in and of themselves, but God uses those emotions to show us our own human finitude, our limitations. God does not do that because He is mean. God does that because He loves us. God did not design you and me to be independent beings. But isn't it interesting how often we run that way? We wake up in the morning, pull the clothes on, tie the shoes on, pull the knapsack over our back, and we go to work. Often forgetting God altogether. There's some notions of truth that are tucked away in our heads somewhere, but we neglect God, and we see these things merely as rituals. But I tell you, brothers and sisters, there is no way you can make it through a lifetime, let alone a day, without depending upon the promises of God. There may be exceptions to this rule, but most of us do not tire of hearing that our spouse our child, our parents, our friend, our grandparents love us. I do not know how many times I have told my wife I love her. We're one of those sappy couples that do it every time we get off the phone. Even if I'm like pulling into the neighborhood and she calls me, I know if I don't say it, I'm in trouble when I walk in the door because it's what we do. And we mean it every single time. We don't tire of that. In many ways, not to be overly simplistic or trite, that's what the Bible is for you. If the Bible is fundamentally a message of redemption, of God's grace being poured out on the needy, isn't it ultimately God telling you again and again and again, you're not worthy of love, but I love you anyway. Almost every passage you come to in one way or another exudes that truth. You're not worthy of love, but I love you anyway. And though we may be running from the Scriptures because we see the reading of them as legalism or mere duty, 
We wonder why we are marked by anxiety and depression and struggle and despair. And often it's fundamentally rooted in the fact that we don't hear from God. And maybe this is just a minor shift in thinking, and it's not some sort of Jedi mind trick, but I say to you, don't look at the Scriptures like that. Don't look at them as duty. Look at the Scriptures as a book of pleasure that shows you that the Almighty is for you. Whenever you slip back into the tendency to see them merely as a book of rules or something that you have to read, then pray and beg the Spirit to change the way that you look at them. And then go read them. And then meditate upon these promises as though they are your only hope. Because they are. Your strength, your wisdom, your cleverness, your intrigue, your charisma, your education, your job, your social standing, your position, they will not sustain you. God will sustain you through His Word. So perhaps today is a day where you begin to think about looking at the Scriptures in a much different way, not as something that you have to go to, but that you get to go to. And the Almighty Creator of all things tells you over and over and over again that He loves you. So pray that the Spirit will help you see the Scriptures that way, and then go read them and meditate upon those promises. And I promise you that though anxiety will still come, that you still may struggle with depression or despair or a host of other things, that He will help you. He will be near you because He loves you. I have watched Tom and Mary's family go through this. I'm going to embarrass them a little bit today. Tom is my friend. I've known Tom a number of years now. We've been elders together now for going on eight years. And most recently, and the tragedies that have struck their family, most especially in the passing of little Luke, um, I watched my friend struggle. I I sat around the table in my basement where we have our elder meetings, and I I watched him grieve. I I saw anger in his eyes. I, I saw to me, seemed like despair. Tom is not the most expressive person with his face, so I'm guessing at some of these things, but I know him pretty well. And so there are times during our elder meetings we would just set aside time and try to encourage him and just pray with him. And I know that he represented his family. I know that he represented Justin and Katie and the grief that they were going through and continue to go through. Um, the, the compilation of things that have happened to them um, with Blake having spina bifida, with her daughter recently having a stroke out in California, and other little things like needing knee replacements and, and other things like that. Mary's father passing away um, a few months ago. It's been one thing after another with them. But Tom hasn't given up hope, and his wife hasn't, and his daughters, his four daughters have not. A lot of us would have cracked under that. Do you know what Tom does in his free time, except for watching an occasional John Wayne movie? You know what Tom does in his free time? He reads his Bible. That's basically what he does. That's like his hobby. And you know what God knew decades ago when that became his hobby? He knew that he would give Tom and Mary a grandson with spina bifida. He knew 
that he would give them a child that would only live six hours here in this world. He knew that their oldest daughter would have a stroke. He knew that they would have mostly unbelieving family members externally. He knew that these trials would come. But he built into his son, Tom, a commitment to his word, and he poured his promises into him. And you know what Tom did? He taught his wife that, and he taught his children that, and they're teaching their children that. And at the risk of embarrassing them, they are a family that exude this first point. And may God be gracious to do that in all of us because God's word very often is the only thing we've got. The second practical suggestion I give you is to prioritize and engage in corporate gatherings. Be here. Not because I'm telling you, but because God's word tells us to. I know sometimes it can be routine. I know that not every sermon is like, a, is like an amazing you know, grand slam. I get that. But we're trying to teach the word faithfully here. Be together in small groups. I know it's hard. I know it's a sacrifice. But, but be together. If this has not been easy for you, if it's not been something you've prioritized, start. Nobody's looking down on you. Everybody around you loves you. But start. Begin. Be together. You need this. You cannot exist on three meals a week. You cannot exist on scanty attendance together. You've got to be together. And you can say, well, Lee, you're being legalistic. No, I'm not. I just love you, and I want you to have the gospel dwelling in you richly. Therefore, you need to be together as much as you can. Thirdly, consider one-on-one or small group fellowship. Maybe you need some discipleship. Maybe you need another person to sit down with you, maybe who's a little bit more mature in the faith, and to help you work through some of these matters, to help you cling to the promises of God, to turn from who you currently are to who God wants you to be. Sometimes we do that in groups of two or three. A lot of you are already involved in that. I, I love that about you. But if you're, if you're feeling a little dry, if you're, if you're feeling like you're wandering a bit, find someone to meet with you, and if you can't, we'll help you find that person or those people. Discipline and accountability are not dirty words. We are a church that is committed to graciousness but we are a church that is committed to godliness. And verses 12 through 15 tell us the spirit that we are to exude, basically a gracious, loving spirit where heaven meets earth. Verses 16 and 17 tell us what to do, to pursue godliness together, to, to promote godliness, to encourage godliness among one another in a spirit of graciousness. That's what we're committed to here. A spirit of graciousness that pursues and prompts godliness. And again, it's not just the leaders that are to do that. Paul says in verse 16 that we are to do this together, one another. And lastly, this is practical for your homes. Permeate your homes, moms and dads, husbands. Permeate your homes with gospel truth. Not just some random Bible verses here and there but solid, gracious gospel truth. You do that with your lips, what you teach, and then you model that with your lives. So what does it look like to have the Word of Christ, the gospel dwelling in us richly? Here's four practical suggestions. 
There's more we could say, but I leave those with you. So in light of the unfathomable grace of God, we must be encouraging one another to embrace the gospel. Why? In order to honor the Lord Jesus. That's what verse 17 says at the beginning. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. It reminds us of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. This means that by and large, the trajectory of our lives should be toward worship. That's why we say very typically at the end of our worship gatherings, worship well this week. It doesn't make a lot of sense if worship is only the thing that you do when you sing and pray and listen to a sermon. In many ways, this corporate gathering is just the kickstart for the week. Worship is everything you do. Worship is how you spend your money. Worship is what you eat. Worship is how you forgive. Worship is what you watch. Worship is how you spend your free time. Worship is what you meditate upon. Worship is what you value. Everything falls under that umbrella. Do we fail a lot? Of course we do. But how do we change? We change by embracing the gospel of Jesus, which was not just for conversion, but is for present-day growth. And we encourage one another in it that Jesus might be honored. That's what we are to be jealous for. The effect of the fall is that we all love ourselves. We become the center of our collective universe. The work of the Spirit in God's people is to transform us from being bent in on looking at ourselves to having our eyes looking at Jesus, and we're encouraging one another to do that all the time. Paul ends the little section here in chapter 3 by saying that we are to honor the Lord Jesus. In what manner? Well, Paul again returns to this idea of thanks. So we are to encourage one another to embrace the gospel in order to honor the Lord Jesus in thankful praise to God our Father. Really, brothers and sisters, this is Trinitarian. The Spirit helps us with these graces. Paul would say that in Galatians chapter 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. The Spirit helps us put on the graces of verses 12 through 15. We are doing this that Jesus might be honored out of gratitude to God the Father who has reconciled us to Himself. This life which we lead is a life which is governed by and directed toward the Trinity who made us and is redeeming us. And isn't it interesting in the span of three verses, verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17, that Paul returns to this idea of thankfulness three times. He says it also in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Why does Paul keep coming back to this? As I said to you earlier, we have to put this on because it doesn't come naturally. Griping does not have to be taught. Griping is natural. Complaining, being unthankful is natural for us as fallen people. 
but as the Word of Christ dwells in us richly, and we meditate upon the truth that God has loved us in His Son, gratitude wells up and leads to tangible acts of worship. So, as I step away for the summer, I call you to be characterized by verses 12 through 15. May this Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of gracious love, come out of you. You will not be able to do this on your own, so you've got to trust Him. How does this happen? You encourage one another toward it, verses 16 and 17, as the gospel is embraced, understood, and promoted among you. The body grows, is stronger, more healthy, and through this, Jesus is honored and God is glorified. That's why we're here that we might become more like Jesus, and that God, the Trinity, might receive praise and glory among us. So, I call you to this in the coming months. The elders will help you with this, but you are called to collectively pursue this together. I know you will, because God is faithful, and I love you, and I see this in you. So, be faithful and trust Him, and may this be a summer of great joy and growth. Let's pray. Father, as I close now, I commend these precious people to Your care. I ask, Holy Spirit, that You will watch over them and guide them and grow them. Jesus, may Your love exude in them toward each other. May they be marked by love for one another. So, Holy Trinity, God our Father, watch over us with Your never-ending love. Jesus, our Savior, may we abide in You and love as You love. And Holy Spirit, glorify Christ in and among us and change us. So, take care of these precious people. Grow them for Your glory. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.